Matthew 15, Lord willing, we will finish up Matthew 15 today. My desire is not simply to finish up, though. What's the point in just finishing up, right? We want to hear from God. We really do. We want to, we want to hear the message that He has for us. And the message that He has for us may be not exactly what you anticipate. But I can assure you that I have labored in my heart before the Lord to put together the things that are be coming forth. And it's an awesome responsibility. Before I read the scripture, let me pray. Father, you know that I want your people to know. That I am concerned about properly representing you and properly representing your son, your beloved son. So I pray that you would guide in the things that are said, the words that are chosen. I pray that you would guide the minds of your people to receive the words and to properly process those words that we might end up thinking the thoughts that would please you and and thinking of you the way that you want us to think of you that we would that we would be clear upon what the scope of the mission of your son whom you sent was and is it is not completed and so i pray that you would help us with our understanding now In christ name i pray amen Matthew 15, verse 32 says, Now Jesus called his disciples, excuse me, it should begin in verse 29. Jesus departed from there and skirted the Sea of Galilee. Departed from there, meaning Tyre and Sidon, which is where he was, engaging with the woman that we looked at last week. And he went up on the Mountain and sat down there. So this is a lengthy trip that Jesus took to get to this mountain that is described here. It's sort of nebulous. We're not sure exactly where, what mountain is being referred to. But it is on the southeast side of Galilee. Jesus has gone north and east from the region of Tyre, and then down south, skirting the Sea of Galilee, and ending up in the region of Decapolis. There's a mountain there. Then great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, blind, mute, maimed, and many others, and they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. Now, brethren, I'm not wanting to stop and make a comment at every point, and I'll not be belaboring these things in the message necessarily, but I can tell you this, there's no better place to be than at Jesus' feet. And there is no better place to take people. And we take them in prayer. I've taken some people in prayer this week and laid them at Jesus' feet in anticipation that God would do something. 
And I, I know I'm spiritualizing here a bit, but I, I think those are proper thoughts to have in our minds. Verse 31, so the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Now, Jesus calls his disciples. The, the scene hasn't changed, really. This is all happening in the same place. So this isn't, a, isn't a, a different time. It's the same time. And what is happening in verses 29 through 31 is with these thousands that are being fed, that are going to be fed here. Now, Jesus called his disciples to himself and said, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And then his disciples said to him, where could we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill, to fill such a great multitude? Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few little fish. And he said, that'll do. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and the fish and gave thanks and broke them and gave them to his disciples. And the disciples gave to the multitude. So they all ate and were filled. And they took up seven large baskets full of the fragments that were left. Now those who ate were four thousand men besides women and children. And he sent away the multitudes. He sent away the multitude, got into the boat, and came to the region of Magdala. I remember when I was preaching on the feeding of the 5,000, I think I made the comment, the feeding of the 4,000 is not far away. I don't know what I'm going to say when I get there because it's about the same. It's almost the same. A lot of duplication, right? Well, let's see. I mentioned... Last week from verses that verses 21 through 39 are connected. And it's a focus upon Jesus ministry outside of Galilee. Last week, we gave attention to that great faith of the woman of Canaan struck me this morning when Stuart was reading Genesis 28. Do you remember what? What he was told, do not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. My, my, how Jesus changes everything. Now, a woman of Canaan is in his sight. Someone summarized it this way about the woman of Canaan. Jesus ignored her, said she was not of the elect, and she was a Gentile dog. And so she barked. And brethren, as I tried to show you last week, that's faith. What is an obstacle to unbelief is an opportunity to express faith in a believer. And that's what we saw in the woman of Canaan last week. And Jesus seems to build upon his encounter with this Gentile woman in order to make known, as I am seeing it, the scope of his mission. And there's always more than one thing going on in any, 
any narrative, any encounter of, of Jesus especially in the Gospels. But lest anyone should think that crumbs to this Gentile woman of faith indicated that Jesus was reluctant towards sinners, souls in need, including the Gentiles. He proceeds to show that His mercy is far-reaching. And that the account of, we find in verses 29 through 39, happen, happens among a largely Gentile population is important to see. And if we miss that, I think we may miss the primary emphasis of the encounters. Some have said that this is merely a repetition of familiar acts of Jesus, sort of piling on the information. And some have even questioned the historicity of the feeding of the 4,000. I couldn't believe that. I, there were some people who actually were saying that it was just, it was just sort of a, another imagery of what Jesus did, but it didn't really happen. There are similarities to the 5,000, to the feeding of the 5,000, and yet they are clearly different accounts. They happen very close to one another. One happened probably in the spring, and this feeding of the 4,000 probably in the summer. In the spring there was grass, and now in the summer, as it was in that land, there's just ground. There's no grass that's referred to. This is not a puzzling redundancy as some have called it. Not only the feeding of the 5,000, but the listing of what Jesus did and the healings that took place. This is not the first time a list like this is found. But this is not simply a redundancy. Matthew doesn't describe the location as well as Mark does. But in Mark chapter 7 and verse 31... Mark says again, this is after the healing of the, of, the, of the daughter of the woman of Canaan. Mark writes again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon. He came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. That's helpful because the region of Decapolis was on the eastern side of Galilee and it was primarily a Gentile territory. There were Jews that lived in those parts, but it was primarily Gentile, ruled by Gentiles, affected by Gentiles. Matthew does give specific pointers that Jesus is dealing with a primary Gentile audience. One of the biggest pointers is found at the end of verse 31, when the response of the crowd was, they glorified the God of Israel. The only time you'll find that, it's not that they glorified God. You'll find that in the Gospels. But here, it's they glorified the God of Israel. What if it had been just a Jewish crowd? That's not the response that would have been recorded. And then there were seven large baskets that carried the remains after the feeding of the 4,000, seven large baskets. A different word is used there than is used in the feeding of the 5,000. This 
as it's translated, translated in the New King James, large baskets is a word that refers to the kind of basket that was common among the Gentiles. By the way, how big are those baskets? Paul was let down from over a wall in Damascus in one of these baskets. That's how big it was. They were large baskets. And they were familiar, common among the Gentiles, not so much the Jews. And then the twelve baskets, of course, that was distinctly uh, Twelve is distinct, and the baskets were those kinds used by the Jews. And so there was a, a distinct reference to a Jewish in a Jewish context. But here it's a Gentile context. Jesus is doing among a largely Gentile gathering what he previously did primarily among the Jews. Writing to a largely Jewish congregation, Matthew emphasizes that Jesus' mission was not limited to the genealogical household of Israel. Jesus cares for dogs, Gentiles, the world. And any religious group that qualifies God's people by ethnicity does not understand the nature of the kingdom of God. We see this when we go downtown. They're down there just about every week that I've been anyway. And they're called black Hebrew Israelites. And I'm not going to go into all of that except to say that's a group of people. And there are others similar to that who say that you have to be of a certain ethnicity in order to be part of the kingdom. This is not just an ancient thing. This is a modern thing in the minds of many. No, as we have emphasized, and you know very well, faith in Jesus Christ identifies you as a spiritual descendant of Abraham, regardless of your origin. And so Jesus' ministry ended a period of 400 years of silence from heaven after the prophet Malachi. There had been no new revelation. There had been no seasons of miracles like in the times of Moses and Joshua. Or Elijah and Elisha. By the way, it's fascinating. We're going to, if we get there, I hope to, by the end of the message, show you that, that there is a connection between what's going on here in this region and what went on in the, in the time of Elisha. Miracles then, but then there was this long period in which there were not these kinds of miracles. And then from Malachi, Until Jesus, John the Baptist, and then Jesus. Not really John the Baptist, because John the Baptist didn't do any signs and wonders or miracles. Jesus did. So in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, and a new day dawned, accompanied by the confirmation of signs, wonders, and miracles, so that, and I could go to many Scriptures to prove this, and I I think you already know this, but I'm, I'm just building this foundation Jesus says, therefore, well, John records this on the way to what Jesus says. Therefore, there was a division again among the Jews because of these sayings. And many of them said, he has a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? It was the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem. It was winter. Jesus walked into the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you. And you didn't believe. The works that I do 
in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. There was something unique about the works of Jesus that, by the way, many of which are not duplicable. They're incommunicable, we might say. The works. Peter said it this way in Acts 2.22. Many men of, Israel hear, men of Israel hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst as you yourselves also know. No, Jesus' works were both a testimony that he was indeed the Messiah, the Christ sent from heaven, God manifest in the flesh. What would you say of someone who said, you believe in God? Believe also in me. I thought about that. What if I stood, what if I stood before you this morning and said, hey, you believe in God? Believe also in me. Who can say that? God. In the flesh. And this is what Jesus is demonstrating in his life and ministry. He's doing it again here in this passage. But he's also demonstrating the compassion of God for a world suffering under the temporal curse of sin, which we have noted before. We're going to note it again today. This passage is similar to ones that we've already expounded upon. So I'm not going to take a whole lot of time in, in the details of verses 29 through 39. What stands out is this. The Messiah's heart for Gentiles is very much like his heart for Jews. And let me suggest this to your minds before we go further, because it's important that we we don't start stop short in our thinking when we think about and see and read about the healing and the feeding ministry of Jesus, all of which were historical realities. But they did not fulfill the Messiah's ultimate purpose. They were signs pointing to a much greater and eternal reality. That would require the humiliation, suffering, and then the glory of the Son of Man. And so here at this point in Jesus' ministry, He's on His way to the cross. It's about a year away. And He makes it very clear the scope of His mission included Jew and Gentile. Paul wrote, in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of, of Christ. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation. For who? For everyone who believes. For the Jew first. And also to the Greek. Or the Gentile. And so we understand when we think of the scope of the, of the mission of Jesus, it was for the Jew first. That's why he said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. By the way, it could have been that he was saying that because that was the common thinking of the Jews. The Messiah wasn't coming for anyone but them. The nation of Israel was confident that the Messiah 
was for no other. And the nature of his miracles of healing among them, and then the feeding of the 5,000, all of these things identified him as the one who was promised by the prophets. I mean, Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. You know, we spiritualize that. And by the way, I don't think there's anything wrong with spirit. I don't I wouldn't call it spiritualizing necessarily necessarily. I would say that is the spiritual reality that is pictured in the physical reality of the opening of blind eyes and so forth. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer and the dung of the. The tongue of the dumb sing for water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And and that's Isaiah 35 verses five and six, speaking of the servant who would come, the Messiah who would come. And and he's done this among the Jews. And in fact, when finally Jesus feeds five thousand plus, some say ten to twenty thousand people, when he did that incredible miracle. You know what happened? The Jews said, let's make him king. This is the Messiah. Let's crown him. But you see, the the understanding of the Jews was misplaced and their hope was even really misplaced. Their hope was that the many judgments prophesied against the nations. Have you noticed how many judgments are prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures? Multitudes of them, especially by the prophets. And the Jewish understanding was that those judgments were going to come upon the nations, not upon them. And it was going to come under the reign of Messiah. And they would be established as the kingdom of God on earth, the nation of Israel, the the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus knew that they missed who he really was and what his mission was really all about. And you see this in John chapter six. And I I, I hasten through the reading of some of these scriptures, but you can read them again on your own. But Jesus said to them when they had wanted to make him king, that they missed the point. And in John six thirty two, Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. He sort of he's getting their minds off of Moses and onto himself. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to gives life to who? Gives life to who? The world, not just to the Jews. He says to the world. And by the way, and though it's true, and we've got to I mean, this is a a necessary biblical instruction and teaching. He gives his life. To the world and, and he gives his life for the life of the world over in verse 51. I shall give the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. He gave his life for the life. He didn't give his life simply for the sins. He gave his life for the life. Life, abundant life. That's what he gave his life for, for the life of the world. And this is what. He, he says, I am the bread of life. And I'm for sake of time, I'm not reading all of the scriptures here in John chapter six. You're familiar with it, I trust. But go back and read it in your own time. But Jesus, as he multiplied the five loaves of bread to feed the thousands of of Jews. The sign was before them. 
And he clearly said, they missed the sign, so he clearly said, I am the bread of life. But they wanted something else. And Jesus didn't come to give them what they wanted or what they thought that he came to give them. And while Jesus' ministry was to the Jew first, we see this in his in the Gospels, his mission was greater. There were lost sheep that were not of the house of Israel for whom he came to give his life. And you see this in John chapter 10 in verses 14 through 16. I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and I'm known by my own. As the father knows me, even so I know the father and I laid down my life for the sheep and other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Oh, brethren, I I don't want to jump ahead and deliver a punchline before I want it delivered, but that ought to mean something to you right there. Other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. You're hearing the mission of Jesus. It is not only for the Jew, it is for the Jew first, but also for the Greek, for the Gentiles. Oh, how wide is the mercy, the kindness and benevolence of God. Jesus shows in the account before us that his healing, delivering, saving power is not limited to any one ethnicity. So great multitudes came to him, it says in verse 30, back in our text. And he healed those who were laid hurriedly, hurriedly. The word there is a, it was a hurry. They, in fact, the word actually is they threw the people down, not not in a in a harsh way. It was just they were hurriedly bringing them to him. This was not a, a calm, orderly, get in line kind of healing campaign. One at a time, please. It was rather chaotic. It wasn't staged. And there's no mention of any special qualification other than they needed healing. And he didn't kick the dogs. You, you understand, he's doing this to Gentiles. Jesus, the Messiah, was doing for the Gentiles, what he had already done for the Jews back in chapter 11. Remember, John the Baptist sent his, his some messengers to Jesus and said, Are you the one or should we look for another? Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? And the response of Jesus is, Go tell him. The blind see. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. He's saying the very same things that were happening here among the Gentiles. He was saying this to John and the... This was happening among the Jews. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And so among the Gentiles, the lame, the blind, the mute, the maimed and many others. And I love verse 31. So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, the blind seeing. And what's what's incredible here is we don't know exactly what it means by the maimed made whole, for example, and the lame walking. The words have reference to hands and feet, but some have speculated that it might have been those who, had, who were actually missing limbs. 
We do know what he did to an ear, right? Jesus had that power. But whatever the details of what happened, this we know. The multitude marveled. They marveled. They had never seen anything like this before. They marveled. And what did they do? They glorified the God of Israel. They were seeing evidence that the God of Israel made known in Jesus. And we might want to say, well, they were recognizing Jesus as the God of Israel. And maybe that's true. I'm not so sure of that. Of course, we who are reading it know that that's true. We have the full picture. But one thing they knew is that something was happening among them that had only been happening in the region of Galilee among the Jews. And it was happening among them. And they said, this is the God of Israel. It's doing these things. Jesus was making God known. And He was being merciful to them. You know, they they may have heard of Naaman the Syrian. And with that, this is this is the scene. This is the region here of Syria, or the widow woman of Zarephath near Zidon. Remember, the the woman of Canaan was near Tyre and Sidon, up in that region. And remember, she was miraculously miraculously blessed by Elijah. And so they may have heard those stories, those miracles that occurred in those regions among the Gentiles to the Gentiles. Naaman was a Gentile. That woman was a Gentile. May have heard that might have been passed down through the centuries. But here they were seeing and experiencing the power and mercy of heaven to them in their generation. And while this was not eternal life, you cannot equate a miraculous healing, physical healing with eternal life. But the one thing they understood is they were not excluded simply because they were Gentiles. Do you understand how significant that is? In Romans, the Apostle Paul understood the significance of this. In in Romans chapter 15, he writes, beginning in verse 8, Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God. And I don't believe the circumcision there is referring to spiritual circumcision, but to the Jews. Physical. To confirm the promises made to the fathers. And that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy as it is written. For this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. By the way, Jesus is doing this among the Gentiles. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud Him, all you peoples. David dealt with that recently. David Tagawana, Wednesday night, Psalm 117. And again, Isaiah says, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. In him the Gentiles shall, shall hope. Oh, Gentile brethren. We should glorify the God of Israel. We should praise the God of Israel here 
today. But notice as the as the record continues here in back in Matthew 15. And we'll come back to make some points of emphasis in a moment. Jesus called his disciples to himself and said, I have compassion on the multitude, the Gentile multitude. I have compassion on the multitudes. Matthew has mentioned before the compassion of Jesus among the Jews. In fact, with the feeding of the 5,000, he said that uh, Matthew records he had compassion. And back at another point in his Galilean ministry, it says he was full of compassion. But you hear that's second, that's that's second hand. That's that's an analysis. That's an evaluation. That's a commentary. It's it's true. But the difference is this. This is the first time you hear the words of Jesus. And Matthew records them. And it's in the context of Gentiles. And he says, I have compassion on the multitude. Jesus is moved with compassion. And what is he moved with compassion for? It's interesting. You say, well, he was concerned about their eternal well-being. He was concerned about their spiritual life. He was concerned about their salvation. And I'm not going to say that any of those things are not true. Of course, those are the deeper realities, right? But what does the record here say? It says that because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. Jesus' compassion does not exclude concern for temporal needs. His compassion is broad. His compassion is wide. His, his concern is pity. And by the way, this word compassion is not just a, a momentary passing Mood. It is something that's deep within Jesus. He had compassion for them. He was moved in the depths of his heart. It's talking about what was inside of him. He was moved. J.C. Ryle said, of all the feelings experienced by our Lord, and by the way, Jesus had multiple feelings, and you see it. We've seen it already. We'll see it again. Some of them were harsh feelings, angry feelings, uh, disappointed feelings. There were all these kinds of feelings, joy, tiredness, uh, uh, weariness, feelings. He says, of all the feelings experienced by our Lord when upon the earth, there is none so often mentioned as compassion. This was the distinguishing distinguishing feature of his character, J.C. Ryle says. His compassion. By the way, I would suggest to you and hang on to this because I'm going to refer to this con- to this uh, thought later. But even when Jesus warns, and He does that, doesn't He? More than any other, He warns, and in, in sometimes very graphic terms, He warns. Do not disconnect that from compassion. His compassion. But here it's for the needs. Here it's for they're hungry. And what he did for the Jews, feeding the 5,000 plus, he does here for this largely Gentile gathering. And just as in the Jewish feeding, here he multiplies a naturally insufficient provision so that 
4,000 plus are fed and seven large baskets are left over. I know there's seven instead of 12, but I'm thinking there may have been just as much left over with seven large baskets as there were with 12. By the way, I do not, I, I don't have anything to say to you very much about the significance of the numbers. There's people who speculate and say all kinds of things. I'm going to leave that alone and you can do with it what you will. But what I want us to see is Jesus' compassion. For the multitudes of Gentiles was very real, and it must have spoken volumes to his disciples, Jewish disciples. In verses 30 through 35, when his disciples said to him, "Where could we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill to fill to fill?" You know what he says. Where 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 could we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill? Not not just to each person have a taste, but to fill. Such a great multitude. Some, you know, were the disciples so forgetful? I mean, this has only been months since the feeding of the 5,000. Were they so forgetful, so ignorant, so in unbelief? Later, we will see that Jesus chides them for forgetting. So it's possible that they had forgotten. But some, including, and I say this because I got it from John MacArthur, says he doesn't see it that way. And I think he may be onto something. He says that what the disciples were expressing was really faith. In other words, they were saying, Master, in a sense, you who are the compassionate one, you're the only one who can fill such a great multitude with such inadequate supply. They knew the supply was inadequate. And so Jesus says, how many loaves do you have? They said seven and a few little fish. And as I said early, earlier, I'll say it a different way. It's as if Jesus is saying, perfect, perfect. And maybe that this thought just flashed into my mind. Take it for what it's worth. Seven baskets left over. Perfect. Isn't seven the number of perfection? Perfect. He doesn't miss a beat. He doesn't chide the disciples. He doesn't. It's as if he's saying to them, yes, bring me what you have. That's what he said in the other account, right? Bring me what you have. It's not enough. It's not sufficient. But I am sufficient. I am sufficient. And so he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. And he distributed through the disciples so that they all were fed. He once again demonstrates that he was enough. He, and really he alone. I know he used means, as I said in the last message on the 5,000. He used means, he used what was there. But he alone really was the reason why that which was humanly impossible was made possible. He provided so that they all ate and were filled. And then the leftovers. That's astonishing, really. And so we understand that there is sufficient bread from the bread of life to supply all who are hungry and come to Him. Whether you be a Jew or Gentile, whether you be male or female, whether you be rich or poor, whether you be slave or free, no matter who you are, Jesus is sufficient. 
And brethren, this is a significant point. Because in the minds of the Jews, this does not compute. The the significance of Jesus' compassion toward Gentiles, it may be lost on us. We've been the recipients of His compassion, His love, His kindness, His salvation. And so we sort of forget about where this thing came from. We forget about the history of redemption. There was a time when, as Gentiles, we were cut off from God, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. We were idolaters as a people group, not just as individuals. But what is happening here in the life of Jesus is not lost on the Jews. Listen to me. If their interpretation of the Old Testament prophets were correct, there would be no hope for Gentiles. There would be no hope for you and me today. If the Jewish interpretation of Old Testament prophecy is true, we would be hopeless But in Jesus' ministry, He is demonstrating that we are not hopeless. And by the way, Isaiah prophesied in such a way, and others as well, but Isaiah prophesied in such a way where the Jews should have expected something very different than what they were expecting from the Messiah. Oh, Jesus came with a very different mission that includes people like you, And me. The promised judgment. We're going to go to another passage here to demonstrate what I'm saying here, to illustrate what I'm saying. But the promised judgment that the Jews were so fixated upon. The promised judgment that, by the way, Yahweh himself over and over again prophesied through the prophets that would come upon the nations That promised judgment has not yet come. Today is the day of salvation. And Jesus is demonstrating this in his lifetime ministry and through the apostles and New Testament apostles and prophets. He has confirmed this. I want you to turn over to Luke chapter four. I want you to see the significance of what I'm talking about here. In this mission of Jesus, which Jews, by and large, did not understand. Jesus did not fit the messianic expectation of most Jews. And so Jesus, he is in, he's on the, in the synagogue on a Sabbath day. They give him the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. And so he begins to read in verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the broken hearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. The favorable year of the Lord. The year of favor. The year of Jubilee. Then he closed the book. 
Now, if you're not looking at Isaiah 62, you don't, you don't know this. Or 61, I'm sorry. Isaiah 61, you don't know this. Verse 2. But if you were looking at Isaiah 61 and comparing what Jesus is quoting here, you know that Jesus stopped. He didn't quote the whole verse. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And this is significant. He closed the book before he got to the expression that Isaiah prophesied, which was, and the day of vengeance of our God. He closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say, and this was phenomenal, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. By the way, it was the scripture that he read. He didn't read, and the day of vengeance of our God, this today, this scripture is fulfilled in your ear. But not all of Isaiah 61 2 was fulfilled in their ear. It would be fulfilled. It will be fulfilled. But not now. Not this day. And so they all bore witness to him and marveled at his gracious words and so forth. Let's move down to verse 25. He says, but I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel. And this is amazing. He, he brings out. I mean, they are expecting Jesus to do great things among them, like in his hometown, just like he did in Capernaum. They're wanting a multiplication of these acts of his, these miraculous acts of his. Because he's the Messiah. Or at least they think he might be. And this is this is the evidence of the Messiah. And the Messiah is going to gather the Jews together. It's a, a mighty army and the judgments of God, the vengeance of God, the day of judgment, the day of vengeance, the day of the Lord is going to fall upon the earth against all the nations of the world. And then Jesus says, let me tell you what happened centuries ago. Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Zidon to a woman who was a widow, a Gentile. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman, the Syrian. The very thing that happened back then, which was which was in a way a sort of prophetic preview, it was happening now in the life of Jesus in the account that we have just dealt with Gentiles. Receiving mercy. A door was being opened. And this was not lost on the Jews that were listening to Jesus. This is why it says, all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. And rose up and thrust him out of the city. And they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built. that They might throw him down over the cliff. Isaiah prophesied this in 49, Isaiah 49, verse 6. Indeed, he says, and this is Yahweh, the, the Lord speaking to his servant, which is his son. 
It's too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. And to restore the preserved ones of Israel, I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. My salvation to the ends of the earth. The thing that the Jews were anticipating, the vengeance, the day of the vengeance of God falling upon this world, the Gentile world in particular, Jesus is essentially saying and illustrating by His Mercy demonstrated his compassion being shown to these Gentiles. He is demonstrating that that was not his mission in his first coming. The mission of his first coming was not condemnation. It was not judgment. It was not vengeance. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through Him might be saved. And brethren, I want you to know, I want you to understand, I want you to see this, and I want you to see something of the, of the truth of this, and really the glory of it for us. And the hope there is for you who are still outside of this, of this veil, of this, this salvation. That's in Christ. We live between two comings of Jesus Christ. And today is the day. Today is the age of salvation. It is not the day of judgment. It is not the day of the Lord in this sense. National Israel was blinded because of unbelief. And there was a form of judgment that came upon that nation and they are still living under that form of blindness, judicial blindness as a nation. But even individual Jews are not kept there if they believe, right? If they're brought to faith in Christ. And Paul warns Gentiles in Romans chapter 11 of the same severity that fell upon Israel will fall upon Gentiles. Should we respond to God in Christ in unbelief? Unbelief is such a dark and dangerous place to be. In His first coming, Messiah declared by His works and words that He was sent from heaven. He declared God's love to the world. Isn't that what the Scriptures tell us? He was offered once to bear the sins of many. By His stripes we are healed. That's not just Jew. He is the bread of life. Not just for Jews. He's the bread of life who alone can fully satisfy every hungry soul. And you are not excluded. If you are hungry, and to use the other Analogy, if you're thirsty, if your soul is really missing something, and you feel yourself bound by your own sin and separation from God, I'm telling you, Jesus has come to bring you, to reconcile you to God. And that's now. 
That's right now. In this age in which we live, I, I told you, there are two comings of Christ. The first one. And then there is the second one. And He will come a second time. And don't be deceived. Don't think that just because Jesus left that out of the day of vengeance of the Lord, He left that out of His reading there in the synagogue, that He is wiping that out. He will come a second time. And it will be the end of this age, the day of salvation. And when He comes... We who are believers will be saved from wrath to come. It's interesting how Paul says that in 1 Thessalonians 1. He's writing to the church there. This is a message that needs to be proclaimed to the church. He says to the church that you, Jesus, you're anticipating in chapter 1, you're anticipating Jesus Christ who is coming, who will save you from the wrath which is to come. It's coming. But you have nothing to fear, dear child of God, dear saint of God. There is no wrath upon you. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 and 10. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. And so the wrath to come, the day of vengeance... Beloved, I can tell you, you can read about the biblical expressions of the day of vengeance, and it's awful. It's an awful thing, and it's and it's something when you read it, it stirs. It doesn't. I can tell you, if it stirs up happy emotions in you, something's wrong with you. It stirs up disturbing emotions, especially when it hits close to home. And you know that this is the day of salvation and those that you know and that you love and you care for and you've given the warning to, they, they just, they, they, they neglect, they, they move on, they go on like there is no storm coming, the sun's shining. But I can tell you that the wrath to come has nothing to do with those of us who are sheltered by God's love in Christ, nothing can separate us from His love, which is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. But that day that is yet to come, and I know, I know, I know. It's been promised, hasn't it? Peter talks about this. Second Peter chapter 3. It's been promised. And where's, where's the promise of His coming? Right? Oh, we're 2,000 years removed from when Peter wrote. And people mock. They mock. They mock. Where's the promise of His coming? Please, don't be deceived by the kindness of God. Don't be deceived by the generosity of God. Don't be deceived by the goodness of God. But may that very thing lead you to repentance. And to come to Him God who loves, God who is compassionate, God who is bread, who is water, who provides, who can give, who can deliver you. So that when He comes the second time, you will know that eternal life with Him. Vengeance and judgment, it is coming, but not now. 
not now. Peter wrote that the long suffering of the Lord is salvation. It is. The long suffering of the Lord is salvation. Today is the day. The Messiah, Jesus Christ, He has power over all flesh to give eternal life to as many as the Father has given to Him. Do you hear His words? He read those words from Isaiah and He says, This day, these words are fulfilled in your hearing. This day, today, the day in which we live, the day of salvation. It's a a new day. He heals the brokenhearted. He sets captives free. He gives sight to the spiritually blind. He feeds the hungry soul to satisfaction with Himself. And dear believer, don't forget it. You say, well, I already took care of that. You know, I believe 30 years ago, I, you know, I'm in. No, sir. No, sir. Don't, don't, don't live like that. Are you still feasting upon him? Are you still seeking to know him more fully? Are you still, are you still being satisfied with him? I trust you are. Today is the day of salvation. Right now is the accepted time. That's 2 Corinthians 6 where Paul says that. Right now is the accepted time. Time to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. That's the scope of Jesus' mission. Of Jesus' mission. Of Jesus' mission. And it includes Gentiles just like you and me. Oh, I... I trust that there's at least something in you, even while you, like me, carry a great burden that sometimes is heavy to carry for those that I love and those that I seek to minister to. I trust that there is something of the praise of the God of Israel that is stirring within your soul because He is to you the bread of life. And He may be to those that you know and love. Keep presenting Him to them with that hope because today is the day of salvation.